the flock would always embrace me. And then, the chief financial officer of our firm swaggered up to the stock market's metaphorical poker table, holding two of a kind, and bet most of the chips. The house, however, held a full house, and with its better hand, swiped the company winnings off the table. I, along with a few others, suggested that the CFO retrench, back off. Don't expose us so much. Unmoved by logic and seemingly imbued with confidence, the CFO raised the bet. This time he held a straight. Better, but not enough to beat the house's royal flush. The staggering loss knifed into the firm's investment accounts, which quickly started hemorrhaging. No matter how hard the investment team and I tried to stop the bleeding, we could not. Soon, clients bailed. The CFO resigned. And finally, in a New Year's Day panic, the firm's big boss sold our investment shop to a larger firm, which quickly declared all the members of the investment team obsolete. One second I was at my desk talking to a client, assuring him that my investments, though battered, remained tied up with the company like his. And in the next, the new CFO had me in his office, and was spouting phrases like, This is no reflection of you, Daisy. We respect what you did. Before I had time to shake off the shock, I had to stumble through a maze of gray cubicles toward the elevators, the buzzing fluorescence mingling with the whispers of co-workers. Tucked under my arm was a single box holding a plant, a framed picture of my parents standing in front of their bakery, a black mug, and my two diplomas. Someone had called out their best wishes to me, but I was too stunned and too humiliated to turn. The elevator doors opened, and I woodenly stepped into the car. In a blink, the doors closed on the last decade of my life. Now, as I sat on the edge of the pull-out sofa in my parents' attic room and watched the shadows dance and sway over roughly hewn ceiling beams, I wondered for the hundredth time what I could have done differently to stop the explosion that rocked my life. I had seen the CFO's moodiness deepen daily and had felt the weight of his stress. I had known something was wrong, but had assumed his plight was personal, not professional. I should have pushed through my own worries and spoken to him privately. I should have muzzled my insecurities and demanded to see his trades. I should have stood up on my desk and screamed, Houston, we have a problem. But I didn't do any of those things. I kept my head down, basically obsessed over trimming the trees while the forest burned. Shit. I swung my legs over the side of the sofa to the cold wooden floor. My toes curled, and my heart drummed faster against my ribs as I stared at the fortress of crates, boxes, and suitcases crammed into the attic room. Beyond the barrier, my road bike leaned against one wall. Stacks of books piled high on the floor, and my laptop rested on an old sewing table. All my worldly goods had been wedged into boxes and trash bags and stowed in every available corner. I dug long fingers through my black hair and then pressed the heels of my hands to my forehead. 
Though I might not have always loved my job, I had done it well, and it had rewarded me with success and pride. Never had I once thought that the job was me, or I was the job. We were two separate entities. But as I raised my gaze to the moonlight streaming in the room's single window, I had to concede that the job had wormed into my identity, like sprawling ivy vines, which over time slowly and carefully had burrowed into the mortar, brick, and foundation of my life. With the job gone, I was left damaged and marked like bricks stripped clean of ivy. I was lost, adrift. Who the hell was I if I wasn't Daisy S. McRae, Vice President, Suburban Enterprises? Panic scraped at the back of my head and made my skin crawl.